With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, it's someone I've wanted to get on the podcast for a long time. It is the legend, Ben Taylor. Uh... Doesn't go by Ben Taylor in a lot of his uh, content, arguably his most famous piece of content, which is the Thinking Basketball YouTube page, uh, where Ben has well over 200,000 subscribers. He is one of the absolute best content creators on the internet when it comes to basketball. He's written a book, Thinking Basketball, and he just published his Greatest Peak series on YouTube, which I've got to tell you, I think it was probably the greatest peak of youtube basketball content then uh how you doing man i was doing like pretty good before that introduction and now i'm feeling extremely good that was uh how much do i owe you for that <laughs> i i am the king of being able to hype up my guests on the show uh I, and i'm i mean it though when i say that I, I was so excited every time that a new greatest peaks video popped up i actually just went through the uh top 10 greatest peaks video that you did again just to prepare for this uh podcast and it's just so detailed it's so interesting you're so good at uh being able to explain minute details very simply i think is what makes your skill set as valuable as it is within the basketball community. So I thank you for that content, but thanks more importantly for coming on the show. Oh, well, of course I'm, I, it feels long overdue. I feel like we've been talking about this for a very long time. And I yeah. was thinking right before we started recording that the last time we did a podcast together was in the basement of the Thomas and Mack center um, right after Kawhi Leonard and Paul George that's went to right. the Clippers, and I was like, wait a second, that was like 400 years ago. When, yeah, when I was know, that? right? Like, Dave Dufour leads us to, like, some back alley, uh, yeah. like, room in the Thomas and Mack Center, like Dave only knows, and we just <laughs> podcast with, like, four people. It's like, where that's, are we right now, Dave? That's, yeah, that's no, that's, like, great behind-the-scenes context for what it's like to be around Dave, where <laughs> he he has a backpack on with his podcasting gear, and yeah, we had stuff like planned at different parts of the day and summer league, you go to different games and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And he just grabs all of us in the hallway and he goes, let's go. We're going to podcast right now. And he walks <laughs> you down like a tunnel. And then you're like, where are we going? How does he know how to get here? And you, it's like a dungeon. And all of a sudden he opens some doors and we're in a, a random small room in the basement of the Thomas and Maxon. Oh, my God. So the reason I had been on the show today is not to talk about Dave Dufour, uh, who, you know, may, may be greatest peak of podcasting in the case of Dave Dufour. Uh, we're going to talk about the MVP race. We're going to talk about Nikola Jokic and kind of contextualizing why. I mean, spoiler alert. It's just very clear that Nikola Jokic is the MVP this year. And it feels like that conversation is a bit complicated and fraught in my opinion uh because i don't think the players feel that way 
like it, all of the players who are speaking up about this issue are discussing Steph as the very clear MVP. And Steph, I think I would have it number two. Uh, and I've released what my MVP list would be on Twitter probably two days ago now, right when the season ended. And what was that list? And I said I would have Jokic at one, Curry at two, and Embiid at three. And I said Curry and Embiid were very close, and I think they're basically interchangeable. I had Giannis at four, and then I had Lillard at five, and I'd be willing to kind of listen to a lot of names from Chris Paul to Rudy Gobert, honestly, to even Julius Randle, like I think is a reasonable name. Uh, I think Kawhi Leonard is a reasonable name there, although his back half of this or back third of the season, maybe let's say, wasn't quite as strong as what the front half of his season was. I mean, just kind of where are you at on this MVP race? Let's start there. So here's my thing with MVP. The league doesn't define the criteria clearly, I think, deliberately. Um, It's historically created a lot of different narratives and conversation points. And so because of that, you know, even if you look at what's been rewarded traditionally, you can see things like, oh, this guy's the best player in the league. Or this guy's one of the best players, but he seems to be more valuable to his team. You know, we've seen yeah. uh, the the Curry-Durant combo and players like that be penalized for, well, the team's so good, there's two of them, we'll split the vote kind of thing, and other sports do that. So I always v- view MVP as kind of a more fluid thing. Um, it's one of the reasons why I try to emphasize this guy's an MVP level player, or yeah. I see him as a weak, I, I, I call it weak versus strong. Weak being he could win in some years. It's the kind of guy you might see win in some years based on a narrative, whereas strong is the kind of guy who would win in a lot of years or be favored and is kind of not not winning MVP because of narrative. Like Giannis might be a good example this year where there's sure. voter fatigue and things like that. So for me, I see, um, based on all of that, I see the argument for really just two guys, which is Jokic or Curry. I just think Jokic is having such a great season, um, even if you thought Curry was a slightly better overall player. I mean, he, Jokic checks so many boxes and has health. You know, that's another thing. Like, how do you how do you calibrate health on your ballot? Does five games missed make a difference? Jokic has just been a rock all the way through. Uh, And I think that's why, you know, if you ask me for a vote, I'd probably vote him. But I do see the debate existing between those two guys. To your point, maybe it's the other guys coming in the conversation that feels, uh, what's a nice word, Uh, forced, right? It just just feels, it kind of feels ginned up. Yeah, like I don't want to say it feels disingenuous because I don't think it's quite that. I think it's more that people want to throw their guy into the mix as much as anything. And I get that to an extent, right? Like, and I'm willing to hear it out while ultimately shooting it down at the end of the day, when it comes to Jokic and Curry, I will say, I think that Jokic is my guy this year Uh, in regard to the idea of time on court and trying to like evaluate games played. I know that like Steph Curry missed nine games this year. I tend to do it by minutes as much as anything. And what those nine games amounted to was basically like, I think it was like 300 minutes or so. And to me, like 300 minutes, that's just not quite enough for me to make a difference in regard to voting one guy over another guy. Now, 
in the case of Joel Embiid, who played drastically 50, 51 games. Minutes. Yeah, played 51 games and played 1,585 minutes. He played almost a thousand less minutes than Nikola Jokic this year. That's, to me, enough to push Jokic over the top and very clearly over the top because you're getting quite literally uh, like 1.6 in terms of value when it comes to Jokic or one point almost seven in terms of value when it comes to Jokic. Now, Embiid would have to be drastically better than Jokic this year. And I, I don't even know that he was better than Jokic this year. So I kind of want to start the conversation with Jokic and just contextualize why he's so good. And I think that one thing that you often do is that you explain how valuable high volume passing and playmaking is Mm, and just how ridiculously valuable that is to an offense in a team construct. So I'm just going to give you the floor and kind of allow you to explain why high volume passing and playmaking at the level that someone like Nikola Jokic, LeBron James, et cetera, Magic Johnson in your greatest peak series. Why is that so valuable to an offense? I mean, the short of it is when you score yourself and it's self-generated or sometimes thought of just as ISO scoring, you're helping yourself. You're, you're, if you're swapped out for another guy trying those shots, running those possessions, and you're 60% versus 55%, you help one dude, which is yourself, increase your scoring by 5%. And that has value, of course, right? Great ISO scorers who can't pass are still good players. But when you can make life easier for the other four guys around you at the same time, now, in theory, instead of just helping yourself increase your scoring efficiency by like 5%, you can do that with four guys on the court because the second the defense starts to cheat over toward you, you've created an advantage. You've created a little power play. So the ability to find the open man or as what's happened, you know, what happens in a lot of possessions in basketball is you kick it and the ball needs to keep moving to maintain an advantage or even increase the advantage if you have good secondary passers or guys that can attack closeouts and kick it out. Like just that element that bends a defense, as long as you can capitalize on that, is helping the whole team on the floor. And so that's going to usually get you as much mileage, if not more, than your scoring alone by itself when you're on the court. And let's kind of apply that to Jokic, right? Because in the case of Jokic, why it's so valuable is that he's just the constant bailout option for Denver. They obviously run their initial sets through him for the most part. They'll throw him the ball at the high post or he'll bring the ball up the court. And maybe he runs a ball screen or maybe he tries to find a cutter immediately or Maybe he just reverses the ball to the wing, comes over, runs a dribble handoff, and then, you know, catches the ball. Uh, His guy tries to make a move and gets shut down. Jokic is just the guy who can come back over, ask for the ball back from him, and reset a high leverage, high efficiency play on offense. Like, it's... It's weird. (laughs) There are just so many different things that the defense has to be prepared for over the 24 seconds and they have to be locked in for all 24 seconds because unlike someone you know like Joel Embiid if Joel Embiid gives the ball up he might not be able to get it back because his perimeter skill is just not quite as good as Jokic's is in the case or at least might not get it back in a high leverage situation 
because right. maybe his teammates aren't as good at post entry passes, or maybe um, you know he's getting he's it just, at the top of the key and he's not as valuable there as someone like you. Exactly, he's not as dangerous in as many spots on the floor. And right. I think one of the things that's unique to Jokic, uh, and I talked about this on an episode of my podcast, the Thinking Basketball podcast. I think the episode with Chris Herring where we were discussing Jokic and time of possession and number of touches and these kinds of stats. And it's extremely unique. And it has to do with this dynamic that we're discussing here, where he has the ball, he makes a decision relatively quickly, but then he'll go chase the ball or get it back, or it'll be swung back to him. And because he's basically dangerous or kind of activated and ready to be a threat everywhere on the court, in the half court, that allows him to – I can't really think of a player who's ever played like this. Give it up and come right back and reset value, basically, right? He's, like, touching it, and he gives it up, and if that fizzles out, he goes right back into a screen or a handoff or a two-man game, and when the ball touches his hands, now you get great decision-making, or you're right back in that uh, dynamic I discussed earlier where the defense has to lean toward you because your scoring becomes a problem. You know, he he kills mismatches and switches, He'll instantly yeah. go to the post. So you can't switch against him. But then if you're still playing him straight up as a big primary defender and you lag or you chase one of the handoff guys, then you leave him open to shoot or drive. And this year, with better conditioning, with a little less weight on him, his body control is amazing. His touch is amazing. And so it's like all the time, everywhere, he's a problem. That's kind of the way to describe him. Yeah, and I, I kind of want to talk about how to defend him in a minute here. But before we get there, I I think that one problem is that you can't double him because he's arguably the best passing big man ever. I honestly don't know that it's arguable anymore. Maybe the only reason I say arguable is because Arvidas Sabonis exists and we didn't really get his peak in the NBA necessarily. So we don't know that, I feel like. Yeah, I think you have to... The only way to make the argument is to really curve for era and say... And say they had less spacing back then, and there were no way the rules would allow a seven-footer to dribble the way a seven-footer does today. And therefore, of course, we can only expect Sabonis's entry passes, behind-the-back passes, outlet passes. Although Sabonis had a, a better handle at that point. But Walton, of course, is the other classic candidate people bring up. And Walton's high post stuff and those little interior passes and the speed and accuracy of those was incredible. And his outlet passes were great. But Jokic, the breadth of his passing skill at this point and the way the game is played today with space, cutting, movement, uh, specific pick and roll reads. Like, like we're just talking about one of the best passers of all time, period, full stop. And a guy who at this point is going to be in the running for best passer and playmaker in the league every year regardless of who is in the league and then on top of that I don't I don't think people have recognized how good Nikola Jokic is as a scorer yet this year (laughs) yeah Nikola Jokic averaged more points per minute so more points per 36 minutes we can say than Dirk Nowitzki ever did in his career and did so on a higher efficiency than Dirk ever did in his career it's 64.7 true shooting percentage so the shooting, Sam, is it's the ridiculous. One that gets me. Like, like he's basically <laughs> like, had a better. He basically just had a better 
outside shooting season than Dirk Nowitzki ever had in his whole career. And of course, yes. that's right. There's some era differences and we don't have to sit here and say he's definitely a better shooter than Dirk. But like his shooting right now is absurd. And that's kind of played into what you're talking about, where all of a sudden, in addition to his passing and playmaking, he's become an elite scorer. And it'll be really interesting to see, um, you know, what this looks like in, in a playoff series in the next couple of weeks. He's shooting 50% between 10 and like the three yeah. point line, 10 yeah, feet his, and the three point line. That's impossible. His, almost his touch is just, and you kind of feel like when he's around the basket and he has all these moves, little sweeping hooks and, you know, uh, sl- slow motion Euro step floaters. And yeah. as you watch him, you kind of feel like they all go in. And of course, that's an illusion. No one does that in basketball. Even 93% free throw shooters miss seven out of 100. But right. it has that level of skill and touch where when you watch a Nuggets game and he misses like two in a row, the broadcast crew will be like, Jokic makes those all the time. Something's funny with the rim tonight. Uh, it, it's at that level. And, and I guess the, the way that I'm kind of contextualizing this in my brain is Jokic, let's say, just put up a season equal with anything Dirk ever did as a scorer. Dirk won MVP in 2007. He's a 12-time All-NBA player. And then on top of it was one of the, let's say, five best passers in the NBA. Whereas Dirk was, like, frankly, for his career, not a great passer. Right, right. Yeah. So (laughs) you have a guy here. I know. It's a lot to take in. It's a lot that is like providing some of the best playmaking ever, arguably the best playmaking ever from the center position, while also providing MVP level scoring that Dirk provided, who is a top 25 player of all time. What Nikola Jokic is doing like bends the brain in so many different ways that it's like kind of impossible. Is this where we segue into Greatest Peaks? Because I mean, to me, he is part Dirk. In terms of the size, some of the the shooting movement. Now, now Dirk was more of a tactician playing off ball throughout his career. But I mean, Jokic has post moves. He's got face up moves. He he's so good around the elbows. That's where Nowitzki loved to set up shop. Yeah. And it's it's like you watch this and you're like, okay, there are legitimate flashes of Dirk Nowitzki. This is not hyperbole at this point. Um. He's kind of like a slightly taller, slower Larry Bird in terms of how many players you'll ever see have this savant-like awareness to map the court and be one step ahead of everybody and the creativity of the passes and things like that. And then the third guy, and he's not quite in the Greatest Peaks conversation, but like if I really look at him, like what the heck am I looking at? He's part Zach Randolph. He just takes you down low and just punches you in the mouth and kills you with like little hooks and soft touches and things like that. And you put it all together and you just, uh, you add in what we talked about with him chasing the ball, constantly resetting the fact that he is literally the centerpiece, right? There's that word center going back to the old days where it was like, Hey, you're in the middle. You're the most important piece. He just is the center of the entire nuggets offense. Uh, yeah, and it's 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 incredible, and I think he's having one of the best offensive seasons we've ever seen, really. Okay, so before we get into like the where he is in terms of like peaking, let's take a quick commercial break. Okay. And we're back with Ben Taylor here. 
So where would you kind of place him right now in terms of greatest peak? So if you go back through your top 10 video, there's a little moment where you kind of sneak Jokic in real quickly in the <laughs> bottom right corner of a video. You and that. I did notice that. So where, where, where do you think that this season is? And you used three season peaks, if I remember correctly. Uh, Just multiple. So you Just had to have at least season. two. Yeah. yeah. So at least two. So usually two or three. So Jokic needs one more of these, I think, because and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. I don't know that his 2019-20 season is quite at the level of the other guys that peaked in the way that uh, resulted in top 10 peaks since 1977. This is so, Ben, I'll just kind of give you the floor. I mean, what is can you contextualize? from a historical perspective, what we're seeing from Nikola Jokic and where that is in terms of just pure value. Yeah, I'll, I'll try. Um, I it's mean, hard, obviously, like, we should, well, I, we the, should note this. The, <laughs> well, the, the bigger, you know, the challenge besides the obvious of the, the legwork and, and the detail and all the things that we know and don't know about evaluating basketball, the bigger challenge right now is when something comes along, um, it's hard to get the proper perspective because we've only seen, you know, as of right now, zero playoff series with him at this level. And, you know, from doing peaks, even the guys who go to three straight finals for three years, you've got 12 playoff series. And what happens, and sometimes we forget about this, it's kind of like a historical oddity, but what happens is you play the same teams a lot because in the same window, right? Like the Lakers and the Clippers right now are good for a couple of years, but before that, it was like the Heat played the Pacers in the Eastern Conference, and yep. uh, in between that, the Cavs were. So you kind of have this tendency to play the same good teams over and over again. So even with two or three years, sometimes you don't have a really nice, diverse, robust sample to evaluate guys, and that's what you want. So time is it a fluke? All those things make it really hard, and I always end up sort of uh, tweaking as I go along and get a second year, a third year. Like this is kind of Giannis's third year at this level-ish, right? He won MVP yeah. two years ago and last year. So I'm I'm going to be really interested to see what happens in the postseason this year, especially since last year his sample was relatively small. He had the ankle injury. It was in the bubble. It was quirky. So that's the thing that makes it the hardest to like really, truly um, – narrow down the perspective on i will say here's well, where I'm at. and with and with Giannis too real quick as an aside we're going to get an interesting control here because they're playing miami again who they played last season when he had i mean arguably the low point i would say of these of this three season peak so i'm going to be very interested to see how that goes this season where we kind of should have a better feel of uh just just where he is i think because the, the yeah. roster fits better like the whole the whole situation isn't as weird it, it feels better so um the aforementioned dave dufour and i have a history of doing preview podcasts and we have one coming up for the playoffs and i don't want to spoil all of that but i will say in addition to what you just said about Giannis playing miami it's possible he gets brooklyn in the next round and I think that's a terrible matchup for Brooklyn. Basically, if you were to yeah. think of a player that would destroy the way Brooklyn is set up defensively, it's Giannis. And yeah. so this is the kind of, you know, the, the, the difficulty of evaluating players, especially if you don't have that multi-year sample. That's why I kind of, in setting up Greatest Peaks, was like, I, I'm not comfortable anymore just looking at one season. 
Uh, you get the right two or three opponents later in the playoffs and you look like a god. You get the wrong two opponents in the playoffs and everyone's writing books about how you're a choker and this and that. So, Meanwhile, with Giannis, too, the the other thing that's worth pointing out is he's going to have to now go through Miami, who is on fire right now, and beat them last year. Probably Brooklyn, and then... Mm -hmm probably the Sixers as well. Right. And right. that's a gauntlet. And if they get through that, I'm it's going to be really tough to deny him, I feel like. Like a, a lot of people have that tendency right now to undercount him a little bit or kind of you know, talk a little bit of shit like we need to see it in terms of what the playoffs look like with Giannis. I mean, if they if they get through this, like I, I don't know that you can say shit about him anymore at that point. Yeah, it's it's a it's a true gauntlet and then I think each of those three opponents is very different. And yep. so um, if we were to get that sample, even if maybe they, they as a team, lost to Philadelphia in the third round, just being able to see the performance against three different types of opponents like that would be really interesting. And you know what? The, the pendulum always swings too far one way or another on totally. these things, and it's, it feels much worse in the social media era. I mean, it's, we, we joked about um, the Kawhi and Paul George you know, podcast in the basement two years ago. But two years ago, there was this feeling among so many people that Kawhi was invincible. And then after the bubble, now you you were listing your MVP candidates at the top. And I know games played is an issue with Kawhi, but like to me, Kawhi's still right there. I, I was I was yep. lower on Kawhi than when he had that invincibility thing. And now the pendulum swings the other way. And I'm like, yeah, guys, yeah, Kawhi, Kawhi's still pretty good. Like, if I had an MVP ballot, I think he'd be, I think, like, around that four or five range. Like, you know, we can talk about uh, philosophy and games played and stuff, but he's right there. And so Giannis has this, uh, it reminds me of David Robinson doing Greatest Peaks, where he had the momentum, he had the excitement. He didn't have a great team, and yet at some point, once he hit a certain level, scoring champ, MVP, then the Olajuwon series happens, and it's like, poof, David Robinson isn't that good anymore, <laughs> which which I think is uh, was kind of a crazy conclusion. Well, and in the case of Kawhi, too, uh, through his first 31 games this year, he averaged 27 points, 6 rebounds, 5 assists, and shot 51-40-88 from the field. Like, those first 31 games, he was probably one of the three best players in the league. Like, almost certainly. Mm. Like, LeBron was there. Jokic was there. Um, This was before Curry, like, really caught fire this season. So, I I was right there with you early in the season. The problem is that the Clippers took the pedal off the gas, right? Like, and that's normal. Like, he didn't play, uh, I want to say, like, he didn't play almost half of their last uh, like 30, 35 games. And over that time, he averaged like 22, seven and five and was similar in terms of shooting percentages, but it, it just didn't quite feel as impactful because in general, the Clippers took their foot off the gas. You know, while we're here, there's one name you didn't mention at the top. I'm curious about your take on him. Sometimes I see him mentioned, sometimes not. And then we can make our way back to Jokic and the greatest peaks. But where are you on Luka? You you mentioned yeah. Dame Lillard, I think, at fourth or fifth on your ballot. But it seems to me that at least, at least instinctively or looking at numbers, Luka would be the guy there instead of Dame for that kind of like, oh, if we're looking at this level of team and this level of player, uh, where are you on Luka? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think that what happened with Luca this year, and I'd have Luca somewhere in the top 10 for sure. He would be at the very least second team all NBA. I think that because the forward, like there's that last forward spot, right? And I don't really subscribe to the idea that you should put both Jokic and Embiid on your first team all NBA ballot because they're both centers <laughs> at the end of the yeah. day, right? And then on top of it, if you do that, you're going to have to take off a much more deserving player on the third team and end up in a situation where you have one of like Bam Adebayo or I mean like Clint Capella or Demonis Sabonis, like one of those guys uh, as your third team center. And that's just like not interesting it's, to me. Yeah, um, it's a pretty big drop off too, I think. Yeah. Between three guys that are pretty strong MVP candidates in uh, Jokic, Embiid, and Gobert to the to the next group of centers. Right. So in the case of Luka, I would have him, you know, certainly, if not first team All-NBA, second team All-NBA. I'm going to do an awards podcast with Tony Jones later in the week. So I actually have to really think this through <laughs> in my mind a little bit more. We're, we're doing homework now. Yeah, we're doing homework now, just mm-hmm. off the cuff. Uh, in the case of Luka... The early season stuff with Dallas really frustrated me. And you can say that, you know, before these final 12 games where Lillard averaged, God, like it felt like 35 points or whatever. Uh, his his part of the season where he got hurt, like right before that, and then he sat out a few games, like that part of his season was kind of similar to Luca's early portion of the season. In the case of Dallas, The reason that I knocked Luka just slightly from the MVP race was that their defense is really hard for me to watch. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I get that overall Portland had, I think, a bottom five defense this year. But I subscribe more of Dallas's defensive problems to Luka and a lack of foot speed. And honestly, like Christoph Porzingis and the way that roster is constructed. And that is in part due to Luca. Then I do with Portland, where Portland dealt with 900 injuries and dealt with new personnel integrating themselves within those injured players, basically. Like Yusuf Nurkic missing a large swath of the season. Nurkic is kind what? of critical to what they do with that drop coverage scheme. So Injuries, injuries in Portland, Sam. It's that, crazy, that's right? Never hap- that's never happened before. It's nuts. Uh, but- yeah. So no, I guess that that make, like that I, I ascribe defense in Dallas a little bit more to Luca than I ascribe Portland's defensive problems to Lillard. Maybe maybe that's like me being wrong though on that. Like I, I will readily admit that. I think Luca's a hundred percent in the top ten and like absolutely should be considered uh within uh that number five spot in the MVP. And honestly, like I kind of said that I would have Chris Paul at number six on my ballot two days ago. And thinking about it more, I probably would have Luca ahead of Chris Paul. And part of the reason that I would have Luca ahead of Chris Paul is that I think we're just 10%. And whenever you're talking about MVP level margins, right? 10% really matters. I think we're 10% over ascribing what has happened in Phoenix this year to Chris Paul. Um, oh, yeah. I like Devin more. Booker is really fucking good. <laughs> right, right. I, I, I want to do a rant, but... Phoenix is kind of really fun to watch, and so it feels it feels wrong to do like a rant, especially since Chris Paul's such a great player. Yeah, but to to me, the thing that the thing that kind of sits the wrong way for me is Mikael Bridges is like way better than he was last year, and he's really good. Yeah. 
and Aiton is better, and Booker yeah. is better, and he's also really good. And oh, Jay Crowder is on like his eleventh team, where he just comes in and plays that like perfect stretch, you know, veteran dude who does what he needs to do and hit threes and defend. And and um, their their bench guards are really good too, like Campaign yeah. and Javon Campaign's Carter, playing really like, well. Those guys really provide value for them off the bench. And then and then you know one that always never or never gets mentioned is coaching. Um, you know, we sometimes talk about coaches and Monty Williams might very well win coach of the year. But when we look at something like this and we say, oh, Phoenix is at the top of the conference all of a sudden. And how do they get there? Who's new? It's like, well, if the other pieces are getting better and you have a new guy come in, yep. um, some of that might be Monty Williams just playing the cards. Well, you know, his X's and O's are so good. And so, yeah, Chris Paul um, has been very good for his whole career and this kind of like late career thing he's got going is awesome part of me wants to see him go to another team next year and help them <laughs> to the top of the conference but you know we don't have to overreact to that and and say you know if, if Chris Paul finishes ninth in MVP voting I think that's probably uh, pretty fair in line with what would happen historically but yeah the to me the Chris Paul for MVP or top two or top three it, it just seems like it's kind of overlooking all of the other cool stuff happening in Phoenix. Right. And by the way, we have evidence that things were changing in Phoenix after the bubble or in the bubble last year, because they went eight and in the bubble. So look, that's a small sample, obviously, but it's a sample we have. And I think that we need to consider it a little bit that I, I, the rest of this roster took a leap. The other evidence is when Chris Paul's on the bench, the Suns are really, really good. I mean, that's, we could, we could, you know, start there. Like it's, it's reasonable to think they're really good. And it's also reasonable to think that Chris Paul helps them a decent amount as he has for his teams in the last few seasons, but that doesn't automatically equate to, I mean, just some of the other names we mentioned, I would uh, immediately, depending on how you feel philosophically about games missed, like all those guys we've mentioned, I would have higher than him uh, in an MVP ballot. Yeah, and at some point we might want to discuss the Julius Randle thing because that's just like fascinating to me in a number of ways. But before we do that, um, we we got sidetracked while talking about Nikola Jokic's <laughs> peak. Um, <laughs> it happens. I guess, are, are we at the point where this season <clears throat> for you would fit into your top 10 peaked players ranking? Uh, of the last, what would that be, 45 years almost? I don't think so. Um, I mean, I did my classic half answer, and then we went on a totally different tangent. Uh, right. Where where I left off was I was saying I want a larger sample. And he, here's where the historical perspective comes in for me. This, and this is where he makes that little appearance in the video next to Shaq. This may be the best offensive season we've ever seen from a big man. And Jokic in the next few years may kind of, among traditional big men, I don't really think of Larry Bird as a traditional big man, among traditional big big men, it really may just be Jokic and Shaq for these all-time offensive game changers. Like, you just put them out there, and it's crazy. Uh, Jokic, another thing that I love to talk about is how players fit and kind of scale with better talent around them. And, of course, Jokic is picture-perfect, for slotting next to just about kind of like any player you can think of these days. So that's, you know, where does that fit in the overall landscape of all-time great offensive players or seasons? I really think you're talking about no more than probably 10 or 15 guys ever, Sam, 
who you could make a really nice argument for are clearly better offensive players at this point. Obviously, with Jokic, the defense is the thing that holds him back. And so for me, what I'll be looking at this playoffs, next playoffs, is is his defense passable enough? Plus, is that offense, much like much like with Curry and the discussion I have about Curry and Magic in the top 10 video, is that offense truly enough to push you into that territory where you're like, okay, I know we're not getting much value on defense, but we're getting just enough passability on defense and the offense is so good that now we're in that group of players um, you know, for since 1977, those 10 guys that I talk about. That's what I'll be looking at. But right now, of course, if I had to put money on it, he's he would be in the next group of guys right behind that. He might be better than a couple of the guys I looked at for the series. But remember, I did, what, 13 or 14 guys for the series. So uh, getting into that top 10 is still something that I'm, I'm going to hold off on. But man, in terms of just offense only, I don't know how many guys have ever been better on offense. So... Prior Prior maybe to, in the league right now, you know, like Steph Curry, what he's doing. It's, it's, it's well, and, awesome. And we need to talk about Curry as well within this conversation. But part of the reason that I'm very bullish on the way that Jokic's game just scales generally to the playoffs is that we've seen it right. Uh, yeah. Prior to the Lakers series, Jokic played eight elimination games for Denver in the past two years prior to that Lakers series. Denver was seven and one in those games, and he averaged 26, 13, and seven in those games. You look at what he did overall last year in the playoffs, he averaged 24, 10, and six while shooting 52, 43, 84. It just <laughs> feels like a game that is scalable to the playoffs in an elite way, like not just, oh, yeah, he doesn't see any drop off, which, by the way, not seeing any drop off in your game. Uh, historically is actually a really good sign and you're gaining on your competition. Right, right. But he gets like better in the playoffs yeah. in a real way. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really excited about uh, it's kind of unfortunate that they're they're we're going to get a repeat series here for the Nuggets um at least in the first round, but I'm excited to see if he again comes out and just, you know, takes no prisoners in the first round and continues that into whoever they play in the second round. You asked about how to defend him. Yeah. That's what I want to get into now. Yeah. Um, can you guys hear that doorbell? I can. Uh, well, I mean, that's the, it's like, I feel like I'm on Sesame street. How do you defend Jokic? And someone's at the door. Um, <laughs> if it's Anthony Davis, that's the answer. I, I really, at this point, am not sure and and that just might be me not being creative enough, but I'm yeah. not sure how you scheme out what Jokic does, how you double team, how you how you change the the sort of geometry of the court defensively, how you change your lineups. I really think from what I've seen in the last couple of years, you need a cheat. You need Anthony Davis to just kind of slow him down, or a defender of that caliber, and that's it. That's it. You're never going to really take him away. He's that good on offense. Yeah. You can't double him because you open up crazy passing lanes. You can't really play like a blitzing or even like uh, a crowding coverage onto ball handlers because all of his ball handlers know that he's just a safety valve and you can release it to him. And then once right. that happens, there's nobody better in the league right now at taking advantage of four on three opportunities. You can play <laughs> drop, I 
guess, but like... That's not that good. That's not that good because he's always there for the cross corner kick. And like, if you tag him, you're fucked. If you, you can't put a small on him, you can't put a small on him. So you definitely and, can't switch. Like these exchanges are just really, really fucking hard to guard. And I feel like you just have to fight and kind of battle through at the top with your guard and then have someone like Anthony Davis defending him. Kind of like you said, like, I feel like that's the right. only solution at this point. Like even like we talk about Rudy Gobert and I think Rudy Gobert is the defensive player of the year this year in the NBA. Like it's, I, I thought that I wasn't going to come to that conclusion probably midway through the year, but at this point it's just abundantly obvious. That's a, that's a slam dunk to me yeah, that, that even, even more so than MVP, because I feel like, there's more room for philosophical interpretation with MVP where if someone said, okay, I'm going to talk myself into Curry, I could say, okay, I understand it. I don't know if I understand the angle of anyone other than Gobert unless we're going to literally say I count the playoffs for the regular season. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it, And frankly, like I wouldn't have a problem if somebody did that and Anthony Davis played 70 games this year. And right. like carried the Lakers defense to the heights that they reached, frankly, without him. Right. Because their defense with him would just be far and away the number one defense in the NBA if he played 70 plus games this year. But he didn't. He played 35 or whatever he played, 38. And it's just hard to come to the conclusion that anyone else. But even someone like Gobert, Gobert makes life harder on Jokic, but he's not really mobile enough to deal with this like slim down version of Jokic in terms of body control and in terms of dexterity, in terms of like being able to stop him as a scorer. Like he kind of shuts down the mid range game a little bit of Jokic just due to sheer length. But man, like the rest of it, it it's wide open. Like I feel like Jokic is going to pick him, pop him, and he can right. make those shots at 40% now. And it's, it's trouble. Didn't I'm trying to remember. Didn't he smoke him? really badly one game this year i believe that's right i'm trying this is the kind of thing we could you know we could look up with i I actually technology as we speak it's Um, it's it's more fun to try to remember with i have the memory of a goldfish at this point sure Um, so utah against um denver this year Jokic went for in their first game 35 14 and 9 yeah, while shooting sixty percent from the field, it was the one two weeks later that I'm thinking the, of. The one two weeks later, he went for forty-seven, twelve, and five, uh, while shooting sixty-five percent from the field. Yeah, um, and <laughs> nine, the- nine to ten from the line in that game, four four from downtown. Um, I mean, I think you're spot on. Like Gobert yeah. is so good that he makes it a little harder, but he's just still like. Let's go back to your question. Anthony Davis, but really, I think it's less scheme and more you need smart help defenders and you need guards that know how to get into handoffs and back cuts, but then also not get back cut all the time, if that makes sense, right? Like you need to be able to press up, but you need to know when to stay back and stay under and give up a three. And I think you're probably at your best having Denver, you know, reducing the quality of their shots by like 10% or something. That's slowing down Jokic. Jokic, if you go back to my playmaking and making other players better, it's not about him going from 28 a game to 24 a game or something. It's more like, can I take all of the great shots he makes for the Nuggets 
and make them slightly worse. And the only kind of recipe I've seen work on that is you have Anthony Davis, so you can kind of never really worry about these switching situations, Anthony and LeBron James together, if you will. Have him play him straight up. He's quick enough to stay with him. He's long enough to bother him. He's strong enough to bang with him. And then the rest of your guys do their job. I think that's your best bet at this point, Sam. <laughs> like, that's it. That's all you can hope for. And then on Steph Curry, it's just try to run him off the line with four <laughs> different guys like you, Memphis did last game. <laughs> you know, um, did you, the Utah game, a couple games before that, I thought Royce O'Neal did the best individual job on him all year. And, you know, Qu- Quinn Schneider often puts really nice stuff in, especially around Gobert. So the interesting thing about Utah against Curry is go you know Gobert's in the paint so they're less worried about those back cuts because it's still like do not fly territory for everyone including Curry when Gobert's lingering back there and then they just had O'Neal uh up in his body chasing him around very physical kind of like the uh Fred Van Fleet treatment from the finals a couple years ago but he was just incredible at it and I I actually think if the Warriors play Utah I think Utah is better equipped to slow down that offense the way it's working right now. That offense has been sneaky good, Sam. Have you are you up, are you up to date on how good they've been lately? The Warriors? Yes, the Warriors offense. Uh, yeah, it's been ridiculous. Like the lineups <laughs> w- where they pair Steph Curry, Draymond Green and uh Juan mm-hmm. Anderson, like mm-hmm. they're ridiculous. They're almost impossible to stop. <laughs> They're, 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 you, you know that they're an overachieving team and they have this synergy and they have Curry. But when you start, you start looking at some of the numbers lately, you're like, whoa, whoa. They're like in the 120s on offense. They're, they're really good. And they're, and they're usually a defensive kind of lineup out there, right? Like Looney, Draymond Green, uh, his passing aside, Wiggins, uh, even, even Baysmore. Like those guys are out there to defend. Well, and, and then and I think Steph Curry the- time. The thing that, like, has gone drastically underrated about, like, Juan Toscano-Anderson is over his last 17 games, he's averaging four and a half assists per game. Like, it's, he's a something really is good happening. passer. Yeah, yeah. Something is happening. We've de- we've detoured heavily into the Warriors here, but... Um, well, this is where they... I wanted to go, though, because I wanted to talk about Steph and talk about his season, because it's fascinating to me how good he's been. This is, like, his... This is his peak to me. Uh, mm. Would you agree with that? Uh, relative to the league, I don't think so. Because okay. he, he was so far ahead of the league in 16. Uh, and even 17, those were the years I chose. I think those kind of years in there, starting in 15, uh, but he, he like levels up in 16 legitimately. He's already right. very good in 15. So I think the big difference is, in an absolute sense, Curry, he's lost a little. He's not quite as quick. But he's added stuff that so many great offensive, you know, players add as they get older. And and Curry himself seems to be unbelievably skilled at learning things, at adding physical tools, at saying, yep. like, let me give you a really concrete one, right? Like his step back three. He didn't really use a step back three that much a couple of years ago. And now he's got the big side step to the right that we see that James Harden popularized. Sometimes his is going the other direction. And he's got one to the left, and he's got one going back, and he's using the hesitation and change of pace on that. 
He's added weight that I've talked about. And so he's physical. He kind of knows when to use his body and get guys behind him. And um, then he says, okay, I, I know exactly when I'm going to use the mid range, the little floater that he's always had. That thing seems tighter. So there's skill improvement and skill development that you could say, man, he's, is he as good as he's ever been? Maybe. But the big difference for me is that he was so far ahead of the league five or six years ago compared to where the league is now that it doesn't make it quite as potent. Okay. So he missed five games in the middle of March, kind of, uh, I forget what, what went wrong there. Was it, it wasn't an ankle. Was it, it was something else. Was that the tailbone, the the tailbone Tailbone. bruise? That's it. Yeah. Yep. Um, since he's been back from those games, he's averaged 37 points per night while shooting 15 threes at a 44% clip. That's pretty good. (laughs) And averaging five rebounds and five assists a game. I think that this little run here, I would be so interested to see if he's ever had a 25 game stretch like this before previously, because it wouldn't surprise me if he has necessarily, because Stephen Curry is just God at the end of the day. And like unbelievable, (laughs) but I don't think, he has like I don't think he's had a 25 game run quite like this right like I think the, the, well the open to his season in 2016 was really strong right. he averaged 32 5 and 6 while shooting 47 percent on 11 threes per game and like look it, it that's probably pretty damn close to being ahead of the league again more than he is now just kind of given where the league was at that point but man I don't know. This this so, feels different to me. Well, it is a little different. Um, at the beginning of the 16 season, his true shooting percentage was up near 70%. The league true shooting percentage that year was closer to 53 or 54%. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was maybe it was 54 plus. I can't remember off the top of my head. But basically, we are a couple percentage points higher as a league. And the month, you know, he just had a 71% true shooting month, which is bonkers. That might have been the best raw scoring month in NBA history but that that's where like the league being three or four percent better makes a difference Uh, and I would say probably the start of that 2016 season was at least on par with what we just saw I mean it's just one of the craziest stretches of dominance let me let me throw a stat back at you just just for some perspective on sort of let let me close the loop before you do that because I have the numbers here I have offensive ratings from the 2016 season versus the 2021 season. Uh, according to basketball is, is reference. On-court team offensive rating or the the box score Dean Oliver offensive rating stat? Oh, that's a good question. Whatever basketball reference uses. But um, there's... If it's in the advanced section and it says like offense rating, then it is the, the Dean Oliver one. So it's going to be the Dean Oliver one. Okay. The league average offensive rating in 2016 is the 26th highest ever in league history. There was actually a weird downturn in offensive efficiency during that 2016 season. All of the seasons around it, 2017, 2018, 2019, they're up over like 108. The 2016 season, the league average offensive rating was 106.4. Yeah, that's points per 100. That's points per 100. Yep. This year was a league record at 112.3. So... There's an enormous, enormous difference there yep. in terms of just where the league was. And that's what we're talking about uh, whenever we 
kind of tried to describe how far ahead of the league Stephen Curry was in 2016. Yep. No, that closes the loop. I don't even need these. I mean, who wants to hear about him averaging nearly 40 points a game? I mean, that's just throw it out. Well, we don't need. Please that. do. I, I would no, love to uh, no, I, no. I think you're you're you nailed it. That's that is the difference, and that is kind of I think the argument. If you say he's lost a little here, but gained something else there, is this still his peak? In a raw sense, it may be, but he was so far ahead of where the league was back then. The number I was going to pull was 2016 to 2018 regular season with um, Curry on the court, but Durant and Clay Thompson on the bench. He played 1,300 minutes like this. In those 1,300 minutes, the Warriors were plus 14 in net rating. Uh, it's not, I'm not misspeaking. That's they were plus 14 hilarious. in net rating. Um, their offensive rating as a team was 116, which back then was, <laughs> was really incredible. It's kind of like being over 120 now. And Curry himself averaged, I have it in points per possession here, averaged 37 points per 75 possessions on 63% true shooting. So, you know, there's. I think there is some argument, as I've said, that you've never seen a better version of Steph Curry than what we're seeing right now. But he's had gears and levels and performances and effectiveness uh, that I think were slightly better in the past. And just... This is not the first time, by the way, Sam, that we are able to look at a guy's on-off in the lineups when his other key players aren't playing, and then they legit go away, and it looks the same. The exact same thing happened with Westbrook in 2017 when Durant left. He had the exact same uh, usage pattern, scoring numbers, things like that when Durant was off, and then he left for a full season, and it's like, oh, did Westbrook get much better? To me... No, not necessarily. It's just now you get to see that full time. I did notice the uh, the, the lack of inclusion of Kevin Durant in your top 10 peaks uh, series. Well, he's in the series. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, in the top 10 ones. Yeah, he just, I mean, I think those those 10 guys uh, that ended up being in the in the top 10. And obviously, you know, the, the other players in the series that didn't make the, the other four players in the series are great, but. Those 10 guys are just fantastic. Yeah. Like, it's funny. Like, I think that, so you put Akeem Olajuwon fourth in your top 10 peak series. And I don't think that's incorrect by any stretch, but I think that that would break people's brain because I think that <laughs> almost everyone who's just like a general basketball fan would say that Kevin Durant, like his peak exceeded what Akeem Olajuwon's did. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think that's an era thing? Like younger fans would think that? I feel like. I feel like older fans would be offended by that. By the way, Durant, and I think all the really new, you know, Durant, Curry, Harden, LeBron, these guys have more polarization than anyone I can ever remember, I think right. because of the social media era. But Durant was, I get this sometimes, I, I got this with Chris Paul when I did my top 40 careers a couple years ago. Durant was the guy who I get like really loud messages being like, how can you have Kevin Durant in your greatest peak series? You're overrating him. And then the next message is, how can you not have Kevin Durant higher in your top right. 10? You're totally underrating him. <laughs> I'm like, all right. Kevin Durant has really, uh, re really has people on their feelings in a lot of ways, I feel <laughs> like, um, because of his personality. And I love Kevin Durant's personality. I love the fact that he is um, unabashedly who he is. Uh, I hope that everyone 
could just unabashedly be who they are. Uh, but, and I feel like that leads to people having meltdowns about Kevin Durant regularly on the internet. Uh, good, good for Kevin. He's brought that, uh, he has brought that out of people in a real way. Yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a, what a human. I, I love Kevin Durant so much. Um, is there anything else we haven't covered here? Like, do we want to cover Giannis really and Embiid really briefly before we get out of here? Because those are the guys we haven't really talked a ton about. We did briefly mention Giannis, but I feel like it wasn't in the context of like this particular MVP race. Uh, Giannis is very similar to who he was. The reason that I have him lower than those guys is I think his defense actually took a bit of a step back this year. Uh, and obviously the offensive just overall usage took a bit of a step back this year because they don't need as much from him, which frankly is a good thing. Yeah, and, and they're trying to use him slightly differently, which I think is wise, you know, um, more handoff action or more dive roll stuff for him is probably really valuable, especially if you've got more skilled guards on the court like Drew Holiday. And then the defense thing is okay because look, it's your it's your third attempt at a deep playoff run. You don't have to sell out and go Kevin Garnett crazy for every game in the regular season. Um, so I still think Giannis has had a great year. I still think he's one of the best players in the league. And given that and given how he's played and how much he's played and where Milwaukee is, I mean, it makes sense to me to have him third behind those other guys we've discussed. And I think you said what? You had Embiid three or four? Yeah, I would have had Embiid third, Giannis fourth. Yeah, I mean, obviously with Embiid, uh, a lot of it is his uh, health and, and his minutes played and his injuries and how you account for those things. And so, again, I don't know what the right answer is. Uh, the thing I will say about Embiid is his scoring game has legitimately improved. Like, I thought yep. he was – I thought he was a uh, – very good score in the past, but it's leveled up. And anytime he's like in good condition and focused, I mean, he's he's one of the better defenders in the league. And that's similar yep. to Olajuwon in that it's not your passing, it's not your playmaking, it's not all the stuff we talked about with Jokic. It's more like you get a defensive anchor who's also a really good offensive player. And while he may not be a juggernaut on offense, he's specializing on offense in a way that's like, oh, now I can build around this guy. I talked about this last year. I mean, Sam, we talk about like social media um, reactivity. I think I had Embiid eighth in my top 10 players last year that I do annually from, from year to year. And I got a lot of chirping about how I was really, really, really overrating Embiid. And some of that chirping came from Philadelphia. Yeah. I think the Philadelphia yeah. fans have a strange relationship or had prior to this year, prior to Doc getting there because of the way that Ben and Joel were utilized and just the lack of creativity offensively between those guys. I think that they had a weird relationship with him wondering if he was as good as was needed because I think that a lot of Embiid's flaws are just so readily apparent and so clear like early in his career and even throughout portions of I would say he got better at it last year I would say that this year is the best he's ever been at it but just handling double teams and making decisions uh and making the right read not turning the ball over not getting stripped that stuff still pops up from time to time with Embiid 
He's gotten better at it, but even up through last year and the year before that, it was just one of those things that you can latch onto and see this guy is really struggling with how to handle those things. And we haven't seen much improvement with it up until I would say last year and particularly this year. I think he's gotten really good at it. Yeah. I don't know if I don't know if I'd say he's really good at it. I, I think that's one of those things, and maybe we just disagree here. I'm interested in in whether you think it legitimately is a huge improvement. It's one of those things where it's low hanging fruit, as you said, and so any kind of improvement, especially with the shift in the team and the success of the team this year, yep. gets this huge light put on it. And and I've seen Philadelphia fans in comments say like, "Oh, Embiid's passing and all this decision making is way way better." And it's like, uh. I think it's improved. I can see it, but I also don't see a guy who's, I mean, he's still missing a ton of passes. He's still trying to make basic plays out of those situations. Right. And it's fine because for him right now, the, the bar you're trying to cross is as you alluded to, don't get crossed up. Don't put it on the floor and you don't have to turn it over. Don't kill the momentum of the possession. Things like that. To me, that's the big improvement. It's not like he's an actually dangerous passer out of double teams. It's that he's making the escape pass and not like completely either turning it over or like giving up the offensive possession. Right, right, right. right. He's not just like throwing up because the thing that he used to do whenever he got really crowded was throw up these fucking terrible, miserable shots. And honestly, I think that that's almost what you see even above the three point shooting, which I think has gotten a large majority of the accolades this year is that he's shooting 38% from three. And, um, you know, he's now a three level scorer, like completely. And it's no longer a situation where that weird pump fake he has, like you actually have to respect (laughs) the pump fake now, instead of just staying down on it. To me, it's more why you see the increase in his efficiency that he's making better decisions and not taking these terrible, miserable, like contested double teamed shots where he's just throwing the ball at the rim and praying that it goes in. We, we need someone. I don't know if it's a job for Chris Herring or Todd Whitehead. We need <laughs> someone to come in with the greatest up fakes, like top 10 up fakes in NBA history. Sam Perkins has got to be there. Yeah. But I mean, that Embiid up fake is really. It, every time I watch it, I'm just, I get a little chuckle. Like, well, and it was funny for years. Wonder. I got so angry. I was like, why are you falling for this? Like, why <laughs> are you not just staying down? He can't shoot, but now he can shoot. So like, it is a real weapon and it's an unbelievable, you know, thing for him to be able to pull out. Okay. This is what the league needs to do. We need as fans, you know how baseball, like it took many years to introduce the, the, the camera from the catcher perspective. They, they put the camera in the umpire helmet or whatever. Right. I think we need to know what that up fake looks like when we're closing out. I think we need like a camera on a player. I want to know why so many people are biting at that up fake his, his shot proficiency aside, because his shot proficiency means you close out to him. But there's something about that up fake that looks so funny on TV with his size as a person, just this giant man and the way he does it. And you're like, but you know, he's up faking, right? I guess you don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Uh, ben, uh, that's all I've got for you. Uh, please tell the people where they can find your work. Uh, you know, um, 
patreon.com slash thinking basketball is a way to directly support and and access additional content um besides the content that you can find on the youtube channel which is thinking basketball my podcast which is thinking basketball uh my book available on amazon just thinking basketball i think that's everything I'm, i always forget all of my material when people ask me to plug my stuff i i, I think i i think i did well today <laughs> Ben is just the absolute best. Uh, just teaches you something new every single time that you listen to him. By the way, like great logo. Like we can say that. Like you'll you'll notice Ben by the light bulb with a basketball bulb uh, in the middle of his brain. So I am a big fan of the logo as well. I think all around the 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 Ben Taylor experience is a win. And I would suggest that everyone goes and subscribes. That's because they've only experienced the basketball part of it. The, the rest <laughs> in life is a, is a bumpier ride. Sam, oh. uh, thanks. I'm glad we finally got to do this. It was great. Yeah, we'll have to do it again soon. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We'll be back later this week. Uh, we're going to have an awards podcast. So until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.